Hello and welcome to Navara FM, brought to you by Navara Media and broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. I am James Butler. And for the entirety of my life, the political consensus in Britain and in much of the world has been in favour of privatisation, the removal of goods, resources, services from common ownership and delivery into the hands and pockets of private owners. But the mood is changing. Polls show a widespread public support for public ownership of things like rail, water and the postal service, as well as concern that the rapidly changing world of technology means things that perhaps should be held in common aligning the pockets of new digital barons. Into this mix comes the new report from We Own It called When We Own It, uh, which outlines a new vision for public ownership, including democratised and participatory oversight bodies, integration into a low-carbon economy, and an amped-up role for trade unions. And to discuss public ownership in the 21st century, I am joined today by Kat Hobbs, founder and director of We Own It, and Andrew Towers, head of political strategy at the Communication Workers Union, both of whom I've had the pleasure to speak on public ownership, uh, and I'm very, very excited to have on the show. Welcome both. Hi, James. Fantastic to be here. Uh, so I wanted to start with the report. Uh, and so it's it's hooked in, I think, to some of the Labour Party's uh, policy consultation on new public ownership. And Kat, what, what has the response been like, both in the press and in the political sphere? So it's getting a great response. So this report is our answer to the question of how do we make public ownership even better than it was last time around? So how do we make it more accountable, more democratic, more efficient, effective, green, innovative, caring, etc., etc.? And how do we make sure that we have public ownership that can't just be dismantled um, by some future Margaret Thatcher? Mm-hmm. Um, and <clears throat> we've basically we've decided decided to write this report in response to Labour's consultation, which is on democratic public ownership and which they're ho- holding right now. And we've had a really good response from Labour. So John McDonnell welcomed the report. He said it was brilliant. We were really chuffed with that. Um, and we're talking to uh, Labour quite closely to put forward these ideas. And what we really want to see is um, CLPs around the country having a chat about this report, seeing what they think, opening up a debate about what public ownership looks like in the future. Um, we also had a response from The Sun, uh, which I was actually quite chuffed about because it's the first time that We Own It has made it into The Sun. Uh, they they said, what the fizz? And they questioned some of the ideas in the report that I was actually most proud of. So we said we want still and sparkling water fountains, um, which is what they've already got in Paris. Um, we've said that we want publicly owned taxis that are flexible to fit in with a, a public transport network. Um, that really works well. Uh, They thought that was crazy. Uh, They didn't like the idea of uh, riding on sunbeams, which is actually an existing project um, run by the great people at 1010 uh, with some Department for Transport funding to get it off the ground, which is about uh, solar-powered community energy to power the railway. Um, And The Sun also uh, took exception to the idea that civil servants would go door to door to advise on on energy. And we stand by that. Um, We think it's much better than the the market mess that we've got right now in our energy sector. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I think I I, I actually uh, uh, was or or experienced something like this. I had um, about some point last year. Uh, an advisor from Southwark Council 
turn up at my door and say, did you know that actually uh, you're probably paying too much for energy? I thought, well, this is a good thing. I can Absolutely. <laughs> see this being rolled out. I mean, who wants to spend their time <laughs> trawling through different options for, for, for energy supply when you could know that, that you've got a trusted publicly owned company that's reinvesting the profits? Right. And so, so the, I mean, I, I also, I mean, I have to say that the Sun's response, I, I thought was, uh, it, it was curious. I mean, I think it's a good sign when the Sun attacks you, right? Definitely. I mean, it's a sign that they're worried um, that, that the consensus on this stuff is changing. Um, and as you say, so much of it actually is so much of what they were attacking is already uh, underway or in sort of embryo. Um, but that, that, that amazing thing, you know, how far do you, do you feel just on the policy front and certainly within the Labour Party that at this point we're pushing an open door? I think we're very much pushing it an open door and maybe that's why the right-wing press is so scared of this idea of public ownership. The thing is, is public ownership isn't actually terribly radical and I think that's why it's so popular. You know, we're talking here about a mixed economy where public services, natural monopolies, things that we rely on are run for people rather than profit and actually um, <clears throat> public ownership has always been popular. So if you look at the, the polling in the late 80s, um, you see that in 1988, for example, 70, 75% didn't want water to be privatised. 69% mm. uh, didn't want electricity to be privatised. So the public has never really bought this idea of privatisation. So has that been consistent throughout uh, the period of Yes, relatively, yes. It's gone up and down slightly. But basically, you know, you've got a situation where there's a huge gap between where public opinion is at and where the elite policymaking mm -hmm. is at. And this is such an extreme policy. <laughs> um, yeah, I, say, I want to sort of go back then and, and think about how we got here because I think that's important to figure out you know, how, we, how we get to the next thing. Um, so so I, I wonder if, I don't know if you, which of you wants to jump in on this because I'm sure you both have uh, 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 background on it. You know, how, how, how and why did privatisation become common sense? So I'll come in on this one, James. I'm, I'm not sure it did become common sense and I would share Kat's position on this where actually I think it was something that was done to the country rather than something that the country was pushing for. So what we saw in the mid-1970s was Chile really being used as the experiment for this. So under Pinochet, when the rule of law really collapsed in Chile, then the US and a lot of economists from the Chicago School went in and led the programme of privatisation there. And then the UK became sort of a testbed for that in the developed world. So what we saw between 1980 and 1996 was 40% of all of the revenues from privatisation across OECD countries actually came from the UK. But I think as Kat says, and I'll return to that point, this was never really something that the public wanted. So in the 70s, one of the Tory MPs, um, Ridley, who, who wrote the Ridley report mm. that influenced Margaret Thatcher, um, actually said that privatisation should be done by stealth. And famously, the Tory manifestos in 1979 and 1983 actually underplayed what the Tories were going to do. So I'm not really convinced that we've seen a huge shift in where the public is. I think we've seen a shift in where some of the politicians now are, and particularly the Labour leadership. And of course, John Redwood and Margaret Thatcher didn't know how this would go down. You know, and Oliver Letwin, these people who wrote, you know, Privatising the World was the book mm. they wrote in the 80s. But they knew, they thought that this was quite extreme and they, they knew that people might oppose it, which is why they had, you know, the Telsid advertising mm. campaign to present this as a really exciting idea um, that people might get behind. Um, but I think, you know, people really, people really don't buy it. And 
Um, if you look at the most recent polling by the Legatum Institute, which is this right-wing think tank, um, the figures are really high for public ownership. So 83% mm. for public ownership of water, uh, 77% for um, energy and 76% for rail. And if you ask people as well, you know, because I guess the comeback to this is like, well, surely people want whatever works. So YouGov did some polling on that and they offered people, would you like public, private or whatever works? People still chose public ownership, which I think shows that it's really a moral issue. It's a matter mm -hmm. of principle as well as, you know, just basic economics. Right. Yeah, I saw those figures as well. And that actually really surprised me because I, I don't know whether it's just like, you know, when you spend some time reading the sort of like onslaught of policy stuff from the kind of late 70s onwards, that you do get the impression that actually the vast majority of the public are these kind of purely... Uh, you know, purely oriented to economic advantage and have no political principles and have no uh, sense of things that should be in the public realm. So, you know, I think that's quite telling, actually, in that sense. I wonder if you could just expand, because you mentioned the Tell Sid campaign, and I think one of the things that is perhaps not widely understood uh, is the trajectory of shareholding from the from these initial privatisations. So, who, so, you know, the, the form of that question is, like, who actually owns this stuff now? Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at individual shareholdings in British companies from the 60s until now, you see a vast decline. So now I think it's around 11% of British companies is owned by individual shareholders. Um, most of our companies are owned by uh, foreign investment companies. Um, so, you know, that, that dream of a shareholding democracy that gives us ownership through our, our shares and that gives us a stake, that just hasn't really happened. Mm. And yet people feel, well, actually, you know, I pay my taxes, I work, you know, I or maybe I don't work. But, you know, people, people work in public services, they work and pay their taxes. And we're all part of, of a country where, you know, the deal is actually public services should be something that's provided for everyone. Interesting. I mean, the, the, it, it, you know, one of the things that, that I think is so striking about that campaign, in, in, you know, is there's a very clear instance of political strategy, right? You know, it's yeah. caught in trying to find the buy-in. Um, you know, and, and it's, you know, one of the things that Thatcher's very clear about in her autobiography is she writes about, you know, how, you know, how much of a triumph of political strategy this was, right? Um, so, so I wonder, you know, you know, okay, so maybe the way to approach this then is to ask, how does Britain compare to advanced economies elsewhere in terms of you know, what's owned publicly and what's owned or what's in private hands? So I think the UK is quite extreme. Um, so, for example, if you look even to a country like the US, you see that the vast majority of water and sewerage services are in public or cooperative ownership. Um, most of their public transport is in public ownership. Uh, and, and if you look at cities around the world, they're actually taking things like water and energy into public hands. So the work by the Transnational Institute is plotting, you know, where cities all over the world are doing this. Um, it's not just that we've got more of our um, economy and our public services in, in private hands. Um, it, it's also, it's, it's, um, it's the way that we've done it. So if you look at the, the way we've privatised water, we've actually handed over the assets wholesale to private companies. So private water companies have monopolies, you know, say Thames Water. They've got a monopoly. They ha you know, they're providing water to people. We don't have any choice but to use them. And they've actually got um, 
a limit. So, so if they want, if we want to take our water back, we have to give them 25 years notice. So, you know, it's kind of absurd, and it's absurd to hand over those really valuable assets. But that's the way we've done it. It's very extreme. It's kind of ridiculous. It's intriguing. I mean, I, I, I wonder. So, I, I, I guess the thing that that sometimes we leave out. So, we've, you know, talks about the, the way in which these came into private hands. What about the old nationalised services, though? Because the the thing that gets banged about with the, the the press response to this stuff is sometimes, well, they were so inefficient. You know, they didn't modernise. You know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Is there any truth to that about the old nationalisations? I don't think so. I think, broadly speaking, you know, if you compare the efficiency of public and private sector organisations, and there have been reviews, you know, across Europe and across the world of those organisations, there is no inherent difference in efficiency. That's what the evidence base shows. That doesn't mean that we can't think about how to make public ownership more democratic, more accountable, more participatory, and let's absolutely do that. Um, but I think, you know, the welfare state, the NHS you know, all of the services that we now expect as public services are a huge achievement. And I think, you know, to run them down is a shame, really. Often public services are underfunded. um, And, you know, obviously, that's, that's a way to undermine the case for them. Andrew, you, you know, you experienced privatisation much more recently than than this, right? I mean, what was the experience of the Royal Mail privatisation like from from the perspective of the CWU? Sure. Um, well, it was obviously it was something we opposed, and I mean, so there there are points that tie into you know what Cat was just talking about. So, in the public sector, the year before it was privatised, Royal Mail made four hundred million pounds worth of profit. We were told, you know, this was a basket case. It needs to be put into the private sector. It needs to be modernised. Um, those things weren't true at the time. They're not true now. Um, we also saw Royal Mail actually undergoing a huge transformation programme referred to as modernisation. It underwent automation in terms of its sorting operations while it was in the public sector. Um, you know, there, there was never really a strong case for privatisation. Um, but one of the things we saw that people will probably remember is when Royal Mail was sold off, it was hugely undervalued. So the government sold it off and the first day the share price rose by 38%. Within three months, the share price had risen by 80%. So what we actually saw was a huge transfer of value from public hands into private hands. And that's had so disastrous consequences over the past five years for both uh, the workers in the service and also the consumers who rely on it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wonder, Kat, if, if there's, there's something here, I mean, in terms of uh, what we want to take back and when. So I was, I was reading about the kind of post-45 nationalisations, right? So, and I mean, Royal Mail has been public for, 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 for a long time. So it's a different phenomenon. But, but after 1945, you had you know, this, what was essentially a kind of rationalisation extension of kind of welfare capitalism, right? Um, you know, so, so the stuff that was nationalised, very broadly the stuff that was nationalised were sort of, you know, you know deficitary industries or, or you know, uh, public utilities that had sort of somehow failed the nation, right, during, during, during the course of, of the war especially. Um, and so, so you got this sort of socialisation of loss rather than profit. And it's, it's interesting in forty five the stuff that people really objected to post-45 and the, the Atlee government, the real objection came from steel. So steel was the profit-making industry which they really didn't want to see nationalised. So it was this sort of like very kind, quite haphazard approach to these nationalisations. Um, and so two things. One was that, you know, there didn't, as much as people talked about planning in the post-45 period, there didn't seem to be much of a plan in terms of the way in which actually these nationalisations were carried out. And 
and then you get sort of 49, you get this kind of very strange list, of, oh, maybe we'll nationalise sugar or meat or something like that. It's not, not, not the best sort of policy creation ever. But it, there, was, there was something here, I think, that's quite interesting and that maybe opens up to some of the stuff that you were thinking about in the report. Because those nationalisations, you look at the National Coal Board, not much changed in the period, you know, in, you know, between when it was privately owned and when it was nominally nationalised. Um, the nature and makeup of those industries didn't change. So when you're talking about public ownership, what does that look like in terms of what it does to, to those industries? Yeah, I think that's exactly the question because public ownership is more efficient in that it means we can reinvest profits, we've got lower rates of interest, we're not, you know, regulating markets where they don't, you know, where they, where they shouldn't exist. But at the same time, you know, if you compare, you know, if you think about some of the things that are in public ownership right now, you know, Scottish Water, the Met Office, the Land Registry, Ordnance Survey, the Royal Mint, you know, all of these things... Uh, they're doing a good job and they're efficient and, you know, we can be proud of them, but they're not kind of examples of wonderful democratic participation. So I think, you know, now is a really good time to start the debate about what we think we want public ownership to look like and what participation looks like in that context and how it how it can help make public services better, especially when we've got, you know, huge challenges that we're facing in terms of, you know, climate emergency, rising inequality now is a chance to kind of a starting point to create a more democratic economy and public services are a great place to start with that. Yeah, I think so. Kat's hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, the current model of public ownership really isn't democratic. And a good example of that is the post office. So the post office was separated from Royal Mail and kept in public ownership when Royal Mail was privatised. But what we've seen um, in the post office since then is significant closures, a number of cuts. And what's going on at the moment? So the post office is undertaking a programme of franchising. So it closes down some of the biggest, the flagship offices, and then it opens up a counter in a WH Smith's. Now, this is hugely unpopular. So whenever it happens, you get thousands of people signing petitions against it. You get MPs criticising the post office in Parliament. And the post office is oblivious to all of this. So a couple of weeks ago, there was a debate in Parliament where MPs were saying they've asked to meet the chief executive. They've been refused that. Um, they've, uh, the post office has refused to attend public meetings. It runs a consultation with the public where it says we're not actually giving you a say on whether we close this, but just how we make the change. Mm -hmm. So you almost have to pinch yourself to remember that actually this is a service that's supposed to be owned by us and responsive to us. But they don't. They simply don't behave in that way at the moment. It's sort of amazing. I mean, in fact, just down the road from here, where I used to live on Woolworth Road, this big post office that's that's you know in in exactly in this process, and that is you know the attitude of that. So it's very hard to remember that that's actually you know that there is you know any kind of. Uh, control on our part and it's completely yeah um, i mean you know, completely absurd so they're supposed to belong to us yeah. and i think we we really do have a, or we have had a very poor conception of public ownership mm. one of the exciting things about the report from we own it and about where the labor party is is they're clear that we're not returning to the old model of public ownership mm. but we're actually looking at something new a proper democratic control of these services and I guess there's something important about saying, you know, let's let's defend the public services that we've had. So, you know, all of the chat about British Rail that you get, you know, when you go on an interview with a journalist, you know, and they bring out the soggy sandwiches and you think, well, you weren't alive either, you know, when this was happening. You can't remember. Um, and actually, you know, British Rail performed, um, you know, 
totally as well as its counterparts at the time, as did other nationalised industries. So I don't think we should cede too much ground on that front. But at the same time, you know, now is a really good opportunity to reimagine public ownership and think about, you know, how we get people more invested in public services that are often at the heart of communities like post offices, you know, where we should actually be able to have some say over what happens. Yeah, I think I think the the late Jeremy Hardy had a uh, a line on this that, that privatised rail was a very expensive way of delivering mediocre coffee, uh, <laughs> which I think is uh, uh, largely true. Um, but there, there there is, I think, something that's strange uh, about this stuff, right? Which is that that on the one hand, like people accept that these services are, are pretty bad, right? The privatised services are pretty bad. The the trains are a dire. I mean, like this, you know. There's no two ways about it. And yet at the same time, there has been this taboo uh, on there being any other way of doing it. Now, one of the arguments that I think is made very well is in terms of natural monopolies, right? Um, So, you know, obviously... Uh, there are things where this is clear, stuff like water, for instance, I think is is very clear where there's a case for natural monopolies. But the argument you make in the report, I think, goes beyond... uh, that, that sphere where you can make a case purely from the nature of the service and the nature of the delivery to say actually there's stuff beyond that which doesn't necessarily look like a natural monopoly but actually might do better and probably should be in public ownership. So, so what kind of stuff uh, are you, you talking about and thinking about in terms of stuff you want to bring into rather than just back into public yeah, ownership? So, so I think you know, public services, we say they're about meeting important needs. They can be natural monopolies or, or you know, it might not make sense to have competition. Mm. And they're things where we need democratic accountability. So you know, it's all of your basic public services, you know, um, NHS, care, uh, obviously, the ones in the report that we focused on, you know, water, energy, public transport, Royal Mail, you know, libraries, social services, parks, leisure centres, all of these things, you know, people believe should be run for people rather than profit in some form or another. I mean, you can, we can go further as a society and say, actually, you know, there's lots of potential for public ownership Um in unusual areas. So, you know, for example, other countries often have, uh, you know, gambling and alcohol in public ownership, because it means, you know, you can take the profits, um, you can make sure that you're running the sector properly. um, And you can reinvest the profits in dealing with any difficult outcomes Mm. from those industries. Um, So that makes sense. It sounds quite wild to us, but it's really not. Um, And I think really, we shouldn't place any kind of arbitrary limit on, you know, what the state can potentially do if it's beneficial. But I guess our starting point um, in We Own It is let's make public services be a really special thing that actually we really value, people people really care about. Um, you know, we say they're the best thing that, that humans have ever invented. Mm-hmm. They're a kind of expression of our collective caring for each other. And, and actually those things are the starting point for public ownership. And then let's, let's think about where else we can innovate. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's, there's such there's such an important role for the state. You know, for example, in areas like the pharmaceutical industry, where mm. you know the profits of these corporations just are not, you know, should not be the motivator for how industry is developing. What about tech firms? So, I mean, there's there's something interesting. Obviously, today there's been um, a story. I don't know whether either of you have seen it. Chris Hughes, who was one of the co-founders of Facebook, has come out and said, "Oh, Facebook should be broken up," stuff like that. And that, of course, led me to thinking. And I, I know you make reference to it in, in the report, but there, there isn't an interesting question about here, here about like these these firms have emerged suddenly, and there's been such a rapid technical change, and one that relies on data, and often the kind of data that's generated in these big 
public-facing companies that, that deliver something hugely important and gives you a lot of behavioural data. So do you have any thinking on the way in which like, we can respond to that challenge? Yes, I think this is really, really interesting. So Facebook, something that we've said is, you know, it's, it's the new town square. You know, you've got two billion people on it. Um, effectively, there are really high barriers to entry um, for, any, for any competitors. And, you know, people are talking about regulation. They're, they're talking about breaking up um, the industry. But actually, you know, if you look at comparable natural monopolies, the regulators have achieved very little. So why do we think that regulation is going to help? Um, you know, help us sort of tame Zuckerberg and, and him running things exactly the way that he wants to. Um, I think it's I think it's really, really key. I mean, these companies like Google and Facebook are probably the most powerful companies the world has ever seen. Mm-hmm. And what they're essentially doing is sitting on a, a kind of online commons and dictating how that is run. So, you know, obviously the business model is that it's run for advertisers. The business model is that um, the more they can make us addicted, the better. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they're not interested in, in you know, campaigns and causes and, uh, you know, civil society. It's about you as an individual interacting with brands, you know, closed um, groups, uh, fake news mm-hmm. and, you know, essentially uh, not doing what the Internet could be achieving for us. So I think Facebook is a really interesting place to start. And we're saying, you know, actually, let's turn it into a global cooperative which is owned and paid for by its members, completely upend the business model. We don't have a campaign strategy for this, <laughs> but we're talking about it. Um, so another issue that I think is so a more traditional kind of industry that's, that's tied in um, with some of these digital technologies is the telecoms industry. So BT was privatised in 1984, and we're now on the cusp, really, of a revolution in broadband. Mm. So as a country, we are aiming to roll out fibre across the country to every premises over the next 15 years, and that's going to take a significant investment. So I think as a country, we could be having a debate about whether so telecoms and broadband needs to be in public ownership. Now, I know when Kat's on TV and she's up against a right-winger instead of somebody from a trade union... Um, <laughs> then the telecoms industry gets thrown back at her as a great success story. So there are two two things, I think, that, that kind of show that that's not necessarily the case. So the first is that since BT was privatised in 1984, in real terms, so today, over it's paid out over £52 billion in dividends. Um, and the second uh, statistic or fact that I think is interesting here is that so... As a country, we're at about 8% coverage of full fibre networks, whereas the leading countries in the world are up at about 98%. So we're way behind on this. So the idea that telecoms has been a success story and um, shouldn't be discussed in this context, mm. I think we need, to be, we need to start having that conversation on the left. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is astonishing that, that, that the role has been so dire. I mean, I, you know, it... it it kind of, it's kind of beyond belief, but at the same time, like there's actually, and this is perhaps goes to the point about democratic control. There's actually like uh, I, as a consumer, I I have like no means of redress at all. I can't even contact BT about rollout of stuff like fiber because they only deal business to business, right? Like the, as a consumer, there's no, there's absolutely no uh, route for 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 uh, you know demand at all. Absolutely, and we don't have this kind of concept of a public service user. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're we're trying to talk about that because actually it's a really important relationship that we have. You know, we we should be able to have a say and involvement in public services. Um, but you know, we just get to be consumers right now, and the deal that we get 
isn't any good mm-hmm. um but there's very little we can do about it so so what would that look like then i know in the report um i think this this leads us on actually quite nicely to thinking about democratizing um the, the these kind of large structures these large companies and you know, whatever um because on the one hand there's the you know so you propose a kind of governance model which has you know various actors at the table and involved in governance one is a kind of amped up role for trade unions which i think is like just obviously necessary um but but you also talk about establishing a new well, one a new office in government right so a new department but also a, a national organization a sort of mediating organization for service users tell me what that would look like yeah that's right so we're talking about you know how do we put the public into public ownership so what we're proposing is you know right now you've got regulators ineffectively regulating the privatized industries if we have publicly owned companies um obviously we hold government accountable for providing those but how do we do that what we're suggesting is we create a new organization which is effectively a cooperative structure and that would be a bit like a trade union for people who use public services so you would be able to register to be part of it you can vote in elections um and it basically maximizes the extent you know it helps you to participate as much as you want to um you don't have to participate but if if you want to this is the organization that will help you do that and this organization would have statutory powers it could hold government to account and it would effectively be a really strong kind of institutional force outside of the state but making sure that the people who use public services get what they want from them how do we avoid the problem i mean so it's it's one of the things that has that is striking in the history of, of nationalization um you know nationalizations or movement into uh, different kinds of ownership um they haven't always been worker led uh and i mean obviously i referred to the coal board earlier i how do we avoid a situation in which the state effectively functions like a very large private employer because you know in the past you know, and and coal is the obvious one, right? Because when it was moved into nationalisation, actually the work rate, the exploitation rate intensified, right? It, it wasn't you know, suddenly a paradise. Um, so 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 you know, what's the? I mean, and partly this is just a political question, right? But it's it's also like, is there something structural we can do here, or is there something we can change to 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 avoid that problem? Yeah. So what we're proposing is that wherever you've got a, a publicly owned company, you have a supervisory board um, to hold that publicly owned company accountable. And we're we're suggesting in the report a structure for that board. So what we're saying is you'd have half uh, elected politicians and uh, people appointed by government because government is the democratic voice of the people. And we want to give, give some weight to that and make sure that it can achieve what it wants to. Um, but then for the remaining half, we're saying divide that into three. So a sixth would be uh, representatives from Participate, which is this public service users body. A sixth would be trade unions. um, And a sixth would be civil society. So, you know, groups that are thinking about the long term public interest of the environment of society would be represented. So, you know, for example, if you're thinking about, um, say, Thames Water, um, you'd have, you know, you'd have government uh, so you'd have the local authorities for the area would be represented and, you know, professionals that they want to appoint onto the board. But you'd also have participate reps. You'd also have the relevant unions for the water sector. You'd also have, you know, groups who are thinking about water conservation and climate change. 
How does that sound from a trade union perspective? So I think it it sounds like the kind of models that we're thinking about um, and also that we've seen abroad. So one of the examples that we point to when we think about the future of raw mail if it's brought back into public ownership, is La Poste in France. Mm -hmm. Um, So the board of La Poste, a third is made up by the workers, um, so elected from the workers of the company. Um, There's also representation for... um, Uh, So groups that represent rural areas, there's representation for councils, and then there are representatives appointed um, by the government, um, which owns the service. So these kind of things, I think, actually start to embed a more democratic form of ownership and shift the values that are going to drive the company um, in the future and, and actually what is behind decision making. So I think the point we've had with public services previously is really we've brought in commercial managers They've been given complete freedom from the government. There's been very little oversight. And what they've been tasked with is maximising profit for those companies in those industries. Um, What we're talking about is actually embedding a broader set of values in some of these public services. So they're not simply focused on maximising profit. Mm. And, you know, they they are um, promoting the public good in other ways. Right. I mean, so so that is often the problem with these things, isn't it? That, that these are effectively publicly owned corporations that operate with exactly the same logic and exactly the same conditions as a kind of capitalist, private capitalist enterprise. And so what what so, so one way to kind of you know expand this question then is what what would it look like to be working in an organization like that? How would it? You know, what kind of effects would that change in governance, which is in some senses like quite abstract? What would it have? What effect would it have for people actually working in that industry? So I think for us, the, the really important thing it would have, I mean, firstly, I would say, you know, uh, working for a trade union, then the important thing is, firstly, collective bargaining so the way that a trade union negotiates on behalf of its members with an employer on terms and conditions would still stay in place Um, but alongside that what um, what employees would have is the ability to input into strategy in a far greater way. So again, I think, you know, La Poste is a good example here. Um, there's much more engagement of the workforce in terms of the strategy. There's oversight of what the company is doing. And a really interesting thing that um, innovation that they have at La Poste is something that's called um, intrapreneurship. And I've probably mispronounced that. Um, But it's a scheme where workers can put forward suggestions for products, um, new services. Um, A a certain number will be successful and they will trial them for a year. So you could be seconded to then trialling those new services that customers would like. So those are the sorts of interesting ideas that we would see kind of in a future publicly owned service where the people who are on the front line who know the service best are able to actually bring forward their ideas about what it should be doing. I mean, it's one of the things that I think is quite striking. I know you mentioned it in the report, is, you know, one of the axioms I think that comes out of the history of the left is that people who know most about a workplace are the people actually doing the work. So you mentioned the Lucas Plan, which is a very famous um, uh, moment in the history of the left, a kind of path not taken, uh, where workers present an alternative plan to... to, um, uh, Lucas Aerospace, which is uh, you know facing uh, you know financial uh, collapse basically, uh, and th- it's not taken, but it, you know it, it produces this document which which shows the ways in which you know these 
you know, you know the, the the tools and like fixed capital of an organization can be repurposed and put towards better ends. So, do you see a, a space for that kind of planning more broadly across the across this this sector? Definitely. So, I think the really exciting thing about public ownership is we can get you know we can get workers and users and civil society together with government to plan for the future and think about you know what do we want our railway to look like over the next thirty years? What do we want to do in the water and energy sectors? What do we want to do with our post offices? How does that look for the future and actually create some big long-term planning processes around that so that people get together and they're really part of thinking about that that plan and making sure that we tackle the challenges that we're all concerned about. So it's a way of kind of pooling our collective intelligence. I think, you know, public ownership gives us that chance. Um, and we're proposing, you know, we want to introduce some participatory budgeting to get people mm. in the way of, of thinking about how we use our resources and also you know along the lines of what Andrew said a creativity fund so you know workers and also users can propose ways that public services could be improved and actually get some cash to have some time and space to develop those ideas. Right I mean this one of the things I think that maybe is also worth you know saying is, or expanding on a bit is like what this would look like or from the kind of consumer end, right? Like, or from the user end, I think consumer maybe is the wrong yeah. word. Let's go for citizen or public <laughs> service user. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, but this, this, this shows, does it, doesn't it, like how embedded in, in, even in our language, like this kind of this, you know, economic rationality is, right? Um, so, so, you know, I mean, what would, for instance, I mean, the obvious one to go for is a transformed postal service. What would it look like for, for someone? Let's, let's say that I'm, I don't know, in a, a small town uh, not a major conurbation, uh, you know, and and I do some internet shopping, uh, and so I expect things from the post, but I also, you know, whatever. Uh, it's not it's not a major part of my life. How how would it look to me? How 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 would how would my experience of the world change as a result of this? So I think with the the postal service, it's it's maybe a bit difficult to jump, you know, too many years down the line. What we would want to see is more investment in, so innovation in new services, particularly in something like parcels. So um, to give some examples of that, you know, being able to contact the, you know, a, a delivery driver to say, you know, where you want the parcel to be delivered or whether you're going to be in. These sorts of things at the moment are available on a couple of products from Raw Mail, but aren't exactly universal. So that's the kind of thing that we, we would see as being a new innovation that you might have. Equally, there are things that other operators, other postal operators abroad have trialled. Um, so, for instance, uh, there's something called parcel boxes where if you've got a block of flats and you're not in, then your delivery, uh, your, your postie would leave, for instance, the parcel in a secure place. So a massive complaint that people have is, you know, missing parcels and everybody's got the horror story about <laughs> the parcel that's left in the bin or mm -hmm. on the roof or in the hedge or that just never shows up at all. So these are the sorts of things that we would we would want to see changing from a consumer perspective with a publicly owned Royal Mail. And obviously, as I, I know you think, Andrew, because you, you talked to me about it, we want the Royal Mail and the post offices back together right, again so yeah. that we can use the Royal Mail dividend, which is substantial, to be reopening post offices across the country and then also develop post banks, which is something that they have mm -hmm. in France already. And I think, I guess, you know, so there's lots of tangible benefits from that, you know, having post offices in every village and town, making them into public spaces that mm -hmm. where, you know, the community has some control over what happens there. So you have your bank, but maybe you also have 
other things like crashes or community mm. spaces. Um, and then, you know, if you're if you're not happy with how things are being run or you want to improve things, there's a range of ways that you'd be able to get involved. So, you know, all of the all of the data about how the service works would be available online in a really easy format. You know, so you'd go to the Participate website and they would have a section on Royal Mail and the post office and you'd be able to find out everything that you want to know. They'd tell you about, you know, when you can vote for reps to represent you. Um, and they'd tell you about meetings coming up. So, you know, if you had a local uh, governance structure for the post office, say covering, you know, either a region or a, a few, uh, you know, a few towns, you'd be able to be, you know, be part of that governance structure or or get get involved in the meetings that are happening um, to influence things. And of course, you know, if you have ideas about how things could be done better, you can put them forward either online or in person. Mm. I mean, there is something I think quite interesting, quite unique in some ways about about you know, the postal service, which is that it goes to every household, right? This is this is quite rare in Britain that actually there's something that, that explains that. So there's, I guess there's all sorts of like possible innovation there down, down the line as you begin to like retract this kind of commercial logic and think about, okay, what does it mean then to have this, this entity, this service that, that reaches, you know, across the country? Yeah, so as Kat mentioned, one of the ideas that we've been pushing for the post office is a post bank, so a publicly owned bank through the post office network in every community across the country with a public service mission, for instance, to boost the local economy by lending to small businesses, to tackle financial exclusion by providing an alternative to loan sharks. And, you know, I, I sound like I'm in, in love with the French Postal Service, and to an extent, <laughs> I am. And so the Banque Postale in, in France is, is a really interesting example of a postbank. Um, so the public sector is often criticised for not innovating in with the Banque Postale, so the French Postbank. One of the things they've been doing is working with crowdfunding organisations so there are two two interesting examples that I came across. So one, and you can get you can access this in the the French post offices, a service called Kiss Kiss Bank Bank, um, where it's crowdfunding for um, the arts and entertainments industry. So for the hipster in you, if you want to <laughs> um, do crowdsourcing, you can lend into into that section of the economy. Um, and there's also um, a similar platform that they provide, which is called Lendopolis, where you can so you can go and it's um, a crowdsourcing platform and you could lend um, to uh, companies and, and small businesses that are actually working on so new green technologies. Mm -hmm. um, so these are some of the really interesting things that we're seeing abroad. So, you know, that's the kind of ideas okay. that, that are coming through and, and we would love to see in the UK in the future. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I guess maybe there's, there's, there's some pushback here from, you know, from people who say, well, you know, this is all very nice, but uh, is it even legal? Can we even can we actually do it? Uh, you know, so this is a so there are some questions you mentioned with the the, the question of water earlier. So that there are these uh, breaks on moving things back into public ownership, um, and so so people will often say, you know, the cost of reacquisition is prohibitive. Uh, the benefits are negligible. I think we've dealt with what the benefits might be, but what are the costs? 
Well, so so the big argument from the right wing and the right wing think tanks are going crazy on this this week is, mm. you know, we can't we can't afford to compensate the shareholders because it's going to be so much money. The fact is, Parliament can decide how much we compensate shareholders. Um, they can they can decide on an appropriate figure. And what we're arguing is actually, if you look at, for example, what's happened in the water industry. Um, you know, they've put up our bills by 40%. They've polluted our rivers and killed mm. lots and lots of fish. Uh, they've built up a debt mountain and they've used that mountain, which wasn't necessary, by the way, because all of the investment could have been covered by consumer bills, by by our bills. Um, but they've built up that mountain and they've extracted huge amounts of profit yeah, over the years. they've dividends, right? Yeah, they, yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, it's just, it's a complete scam. It's like a, it's a, it's a legal scam. Um, you know, and essentially they've got a terrible track record you know, in providing something that is a human right, a basic service. So what we're saying is, if anything, they should be compensating us after what they've done to our public service. We shouldn't be compensating them um, because they just don't deserve it. And, you know, Parliament is free to decide what's appropriate. So I think it's really important that we we kind of make that clear, actually. These, these things didn't belong to shareholders in the first place. Um, they're mostly owned by uh, investment firms abroad. Um, we don't get much benefit from that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that was pretty clear. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I, so. The other thing here is is that so there is a kind of economic question, or there's a a question that comes from sort of orthodox economics, right? Which says, um, you know, it's the profit motive that drives like, both technological development and efficiency. So now it's not necessarily true that these companies won't be run to some degree for profit if they're in public ownership that i'm sure is perfectly possible but i think some of them we would want to avoid the kind of rapacious profit seeking that characterizes them when they're in private hands so what replaces the profit motive uh if we have this like significant change in in, in ownership, so I th- I think there's a couple of things. I think there's a there's a there's a point about innovation, and you know, can we do innovation without private companies? Yes, we can. And if you look at the work of Mariana Mazzucato, she makes that really really clear. We can have an entrepreneurial state. You know, most of the ingredients of our smartphones were originally government funded. Um, and if you look at you know Harjun Chang, he talks about mm. picking winners. You know, we can have a state that is actually doing active economic policy for our benefit, you know, arguably that is its job. Um, I guess, you know, the other point about the profit motive is, you know, essentially kind of linked to the efficiency point, you know, will we have efficient public services without that motive? Mm. And I think that's where we do have to, I think we have to recognise that, you know, where there is competition, that can be that can be a useful mechanism. And if we don't have it and we have what is essentially a monopoly, we need alternative mechanisms. So that's what we're trying to achieve with this organisation, participate with the various structures we've proposed in the report is, you know, let's have real accountability. Let's have some separation of, of powers, essentially, so that we can make sure to hold government to account if publicly owned services aren't delivering the way that we want them to. I mean, so I, mean, I suppose that the dual question then is, is, you know, can you have something that's both cheaper to use and maintains or even expands the level of investment in the service. Is that plausible? Well, so some of the free bus travel that's happening around the world turns out to be a really good deal for the public purse. Um, So I think, you know, it's all a question of priorities, isn't it? Right now we're spending so little on our public services that we're undermining, you know, both public services and the wider economy, we should be investing in these things because they they support, you know, all kinds of public policy goals. Yeah. And is there is there so where do you think or where do you see there being 
Okay, so there was, there was this argument, I think, at the end of the 80s about, you know, the role of markets with market socialism, stuff like that. But at the same time, you know, obviously you have the the right who want to market everywhere. And you have the sort of softer left who are like, oh, maybe there's, you know, this role for a market here, a market there, a market everywhere. And actually it turns out that there wasn't much resistance to any market anywhere. But um, yeah. so where do, do you see, you know, there being a role for markets... You know, somewhere in 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 the wider kind of economic structure, where do they where do they work, and where should we keep them out of? Yeah, so so right now, for example, the rail delivery group, which represents the industry, is arguing really hard uh, in response to a government review that we need more competition on the railways, and it must be possible, and surely it will help. And you know, you've given us twenty five years, but please give us another twenty five years because we'll sort it out. Um, you know, that's hard for people to stomach, really, the idea that that the railway has much meaningful competition at all and mm. the idea that these proposals would sort them out. Um, you know, similarly, uh, bus passengers uh, a few years ago were accused of, of not being proper consumers um, because they just get on the first bus that comes along. So, you know, public services, natural monopolies, things that are run as networks, you know, where actually mm. it makes sense to run them as a network and to cross-subsidise and to make sure we have a high standard of service for everyone. You know, it just doesn't make sense to have a market in these things. Um, I think in, in terms of the broader economy, that's, you know, that's where we need to think beyond, you know, public ownership to some different kinds of ownership. Mm. So public ownership is a kind of broad term. And I think often it gets confusing because people might mean when they talk about it, you know, worker ownership, cooperative ownership, community ownership. And these are all slightly different mm. things. So I'd argue, you know, if we're going outside of public services to broader questions of, you know, housing, land, you know, consumer goods, we want to see many more co-ops and, you know, much more worker ownership. Right, right. And I think that's important as well, like, I'm, I, because I, I, I'm curious about how you see this as tying into like the wider kind of policy vision, as it were, of say, a future Labour government, for instance. Like, what else, you know, it needs to go alongside this in order for it to function? So I think from a trade union perspective, one of the things that we look at is the state of the world of work today. Um, so you've got six million people earning less than a living wage. We've seen a huge explosion of insecure employment. So half a million people in bogus self-employment, around a million people on zero hours contracts, a huge growth in in-work poverty. Um, so these things tell us that actually the economic model at the moment just isn't working. So there are some services where we're saying we should have public ownership and they should be owned by the government and we're obviously talking about new models for that but I think it's important that we look at the rest of the economy as well and what we would do there. So a couple of proposals here would be firstly we have something like sectoral collective bargaining so trade unions and employers would bargain across the sector to set minimum standards for, for instance on pay or um, employment models, other terms and conditions. We also think that there are interesting ideas about worker ownership funds. So John McDonnell from the Labour Party spoke about this, for instance, giving employees a 10% stake in their company that gets built up over time that does two things. So firstly, it addresses income inequality because you're sharing out mm. some of the proceeds that would otherwise be going to shareholders. And secondly, it can lead you to a more democratic form of ownership of other companies as well. So giving all workers a say, not just those in the public services 
And obviously, more more broadly, you know, public ownership isn't a panacea. So mm. we have to have proper investment in our services. We have to end cuts and end this ridiculous idea of austerity. Um, I think also, you know, public ownership fits very neatly with the Green New Deal. You know, it makes absolute sense that we use public ownership as a tool to go to a zero carbon economy, you know, to, to create public transport. That means you don't have to own a car, you know, to decarbonise energy entirely. Um, and also, I think the policy of a four-day week fits very nicely with this too, because it means you know people have a bit more time and space in their lives to participate. Right. What do we so th- th- this vision works? It's a very attractive one, obviously, um, but that there are you know invariably workplace issues, right? And so one of the things you know, I've got a trade unionist and uh, you know an NGO person here, and one of the things that that I often think about is that inevitably at some point there will there will arise conflicts in individual workplaces but probably in in sectors as well so what's the vision you know how do we how you know you know we know how it works now which is usually the government passes ever more restrictive legislation you can't go on strike anyway so you're pretty screwed so obviously one step would be to repeal uh, our, our repressive trade union laws but what does it look like when say workers bring a grievance about pay uh, in one of these uh, institutions or one of these these organisations, one of these you know, new publicly owned companies, how how does that stuff work when there's conflict within? Uh, the ownership structure? I think it's a really important question because that stuff will have to be negotiated and it will happen. I mean, I think the interests of workers and the interests of the of the wider public are very much aligned on this. We need strong public services, properly funded, doing what they need to for society. But at the same time, you know, there will be financial pressures. And if you look, for example, at Paris, where they brought water into public ownership, you had the workers voting against reducing bills mm. and eventually bills were reduced. But you know, that is a conflict. Um, you know, do we want higher wages or do we want lower bills? Like that, that is going to come up. And I think part of the point of public ownership as opposed to just worker ownership is that we have the voice of the public service user in there. We have the voice of communities and, you know, social and environmental groups in there so that it's a really broad public that we're talking about. So I think, as Kat says, generally speaking, um, both trade unions and so the public tend to be aligned when it comes to public services. And you often find, you know, so it's trade unions that are leading the fight to defend public services because their members will be most vested in them. Um, The other point I would make about this is that in my experience at the CWU, whenever there's a big dispute, it's very rarely just about terms and conditions so it's very rarely just about pay or pension more often than not it's actually linked into the culture in the workplace that's often a bullying culture a command and control culture and for somebody to to vote to go on strike you know to lose pay to actually go off work and and you know that's not something a decision people take lightly and that's generally because they feel they've been mistreated by their Mm. employer rather than simply that they are pushing for an enhancement of their own terms and conditions so under a new model of public ownership where actually workers have more of a say then i think you would get better industrial relations in the future Mm Definitely. And I think the public realise that, you know, most people who work in public services really care about delivering a good service, you know, and and they want those people to have decent terms and conditions. Mm. So I don't think there's a huge conflict, but I think it's important to think about it as well. Yeah, And I mean, I I think this probably ties into the question of, you know, how you change the orientation of government as well right so if you have something like a ministry of labor <laughs> that might that might actually improve the way in which the government approaches these things as well um this 
there's allusions, I think, in in the report or sort of gestures towards, and you've mentioned it, I think, you know, uh, participation not just at the level of governance, but in terms of budgeting as well, and budgeting across uh, uh, across the sector and perhaps beyond. I mean, tell us a little bit about participatory budgeting because it's something that gets alluded to, I think, a lot on the left, but it's never, you know, really uh, people don't really dive into it. Yeah. So there's some great examples. For example, in Brazil, um, where you know the community is is given a section of the budget to decide about, um, and it's led to really fantastic participation where you've actually got over representation of of groups like you know women and low income workers deciding what the city's priorities should be. Um, so I think it's quite an exciting way in. I mean, there's 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 an issue which is that we also want uh, participation to happen in the main form of you know where things are being decided. But participatory budgeting has been proven to get people to to kind of engage with politics in a way that maybe they weren't before. Mm-hmm. To feel a real sense that okay, you know, there's money on the table. We get to decide, um, you know, the process of how how to how to do the process of of uh, participatory budgeting, and then you know how to spend the money. Um, and that kind of gets people invested in politics in a way that they haven't necessarily been before because they get to make real decisions. And then they start asking questions about, you know, the bigger processes too. I mean, one of the recommendations that I picked up in the report is about, um, so having public input into, so strategy over a five-year period. Now, that seems that, you know, the, a good timescale to actually be sitting down and saying, all right, what is our vision for this over the next five years? And where you can actually have a meaningful input over, you know, how budgets are used, what um, an organisation is going to invest in, what it should be innovating in, you know, those kind of things I think people across the country would really want to see. Exactly. So you'd have the public at the heart of the the core decision-making process, but you'd also have participatory budgeting to get people involved in controlling entire budgets too. There, there is, I think, it, it's interesting. Like, you know, I was reading um, Eric Owen Wright's uh, uh, theorist who wrote, wrote a book called Envisioning Real Utopias, which talks about some of this stuff, right? These kind of uh, ways of reshaping. Uh, you know, existing capitalist society in such a way that it, it you know, fundamentally shifts. John McDonald's favourite phrase: fundamentally shifts uh, the balance of power in an economy. Um, you know, and, and you can think of these things as being, you know, they're not anti-capitalist and in some ways, as you said at the start of the show, Cat. They're, they're, you know, actually relatively moderate reforms in some way. Um, but they do these things. They kind of challenge this this structure of poverty, this structure of inequality. Um, you know, what's the the most optimistic picture you can paint uh, after let's 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 imagine there is a Labour government, right? Soon, fingers crossed, um, and it enacts these things over uh, over its first term. What are we looking at in terms of uh, the way society would look at the end of of those first five years? Big question. (laughs) So I think, you know, if we get a Labour government, probably what they'd go for bringing into public ownership first would be something like water because it's um, it's relatively simple. It's a lot more Mm. simple than energy. And with the railways, we'd have to do that potentially one franchise at a time. Mm. So it's a bit more of a process. Um, I think what happens is uh, they would... uh, 
take back, hopefully, um, the regional water companies in England. Um, Scotland's obviously sorted and mm-hmm. Wales is a not-for-profit. Um, but they would uh, hopefully pay very little or zero compensation. That would be ideal. Um, they take them back. Uh, we create these structures. So we, we start to create an infrastructure around public services where people know how it works. And it's really accessible to people that, you know, if you want to be involved in how water is run in this area, here are the various ways that you can do that, you know, including, for example, you know, on every high street, a shop front where you can find out about, you know, your water company or other public services. So we make it really tangible to people. Um, And then, you know, then we start a planning process where we say, what do we want from our water? You know, it's been predicted that there's going to be water shortages in England in 25 years time. You know, what are we doing about that? How are we stopping three billion litres from uh, leaking down the drain every day because the water companies under private hands haven't been investing. So how do we deliver the investment that's needed and link up with, you know, community groups, civil society to make sure that we're protecting the environment? Um, And then, you know, then we get our our still and sparkling water fountains in every town (laughs) um, and we show what public ownership can deliver. And given that I keep talking about La Poste and the Bank Postale, I suppose in my socialist utopia, we're all speaking French. <laughs> right. Well, I think that's a, a good place to leave it. And maybe I think, um, as Kat said at the top of the show, and one of the things that has be- that is very difficult in, thing- in, in conversations like these is knowing what one can do immediately. And I think uh, discussion of this stuff uh, in local democratic bodies, if you're in uh, a party or branch, for instance, or perhaps in your trade union branch, as well, um, I remind listeners, of course, that the Labour Party rulebook, if they happen to be a member of the Labour Party, uh, does stay wherever possible. You should be a member of a trade union. Um, that is the thing that I think the new membership sometimes forgets. Um, but I think it's very clear that this stuff will only be delivered actually uh, with uh, that conversation happening, I think, among the grassroots as well. So it's not just a policy phenomenon. Yeah, and the consultation on democratic public ownership ends at the end of June. Um, and we would love to see comments with the hashtag when we own it. Great. OK, I think that's a place to leave it. Thank you, Kat and Andrew, for joining me. Uh, we'll be back at the same time in the same place next week. This has been Navara FM on Residence 104.4 FM. Bye bye. This show is brought to you by Navara Media. To find articles, videos and more audio content like this, head to navaramedia.com. If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes? And as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navarro Media can only exist thanks to subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarro Media. Media for a different politics.